I feel like these brands have a responsibility to do more than have a capsule collection or a rainbow product or a rainbow logo um, and then take it down the second July's here. So I haven't seen a brand that's impressed me recently um, because for me, I'm looking for more than just donations now. Yes, sir. We're back. We're back. We're back. We are back. We took the vacation off. We, we were took in the Bali vacation. Chilling and now <laughs> it's the summer. We have to take our breaks. We're back with another heater, of course. We got a very special guest today. Who is it? Who is it? Um, we have my good friend, my coworker, uh, Jenna Thrani. Welcome. Woo-hoo. Hi, guys. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on the show. I'm stoked. This should be a good one. Um, Jenna, like, you know, tell us a little bit about who you are. Give the people what they want to know about you. What's uh, what's going on in your world? Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, I've dreaded intros my whole life, so hopefully <laughs> I'll do myself justice here. Uh, you know, Jenna, work at MLSC. That's how I know Malik. I've uh, been there for about five years and Honestly, outside of that, spend my time during this pandemic going on walks, trying to stay fit, uh, watching Formula One early on Sunday mornings. So not oh much God. to it, but yeah, that's me in a nutshell. That's legit. I feel like, I, did you watch F1 before the pandemic? Like, were you into it before? I was, but I wasn't into it because of the show. And I take pride in this. I was into it because my boyfriend forced me. And then I got into it and then started watching the show. A pandemic hobby of mine now. Well, that's a show I should be aware of here. Is there an F1 show? Oh, man, I could derail us for the next (laughs) hour. But yeah, it's called Formula One Drive to Survive. It's just like unlike any other sport, right? Like my original POV was like, they're in a car. How could this be a sport? But yeah. I encourage you to check it out. Well, right, that, right. that's a thing too. I feel like the the pandemic, you know, has uh, not forced people, but like definitely like brought out some interests that like you may not have necessarily like seen before. You know what I mean? So if there's any mm-hmm. like positive upswing to this entire situation, it's uh, it's exactly that. I wish I had like something cool that I could say that I've been doing. Me too. I'm like trying well, to think I, of I'm something. Just like, I was just like, oh, damn, F1 sounds really cool. Man. <laughs> next topic, next topic, next topic. I'm yeah, bored. <laughs> having a tough time here. But let's, uh, let's get into the episode. We have a lot of like really good topics here that we wanted to get your perspective on. Um, you know, tell us a little bit about, you know, your experiences working in MLSE or like give us like a bit of like, um, you know, before you got to MLSE, you know, you've always kind of been in a strategy type position before. Yeah. You know, when you went to school, um, coming out of school, like, did you know this is kind of like what you wanted to do? Like, what about it was like, I want to do that shit? Yeah, great question. I've been reflecting on this lately as to what brought me here. And honestly, my my parents growing up, like, it wasn't like pursue your passions. Like, they wanted me to be happy, but my mentality was always get a good job out of school figure the rest out later. And that's what brought me, like I did business school at Western, went into consulting. I thought, seems interesting, great job. Um, but I wouldn't say strategy was my passion, but as I set out in that career, so I was at Monitor Deloitte for two years out of my undergrad, I was like, this is interesting. I'm learning a ton. I feel like I'm the dumbest person in the room and that's good because you're just learning a ton from really smart people with a ton of industry knowledge. And, you know, it was a good job. I could have stayed there forever. And, you know, a friendship from school and a stroke of luck brought me to MLSC. Um, And it's been awesome. I've been a sports fan my whole life. If you asked me my dream job, it would have been GM of the Toronto Raptors. So uh, I'm not there. I'm as close as I think I should get. <laughs> without actually, There's still time. There's still exactly. time. Exactly. It's connectivity to my favorite sports team. It's loving what you do. Um, I could never have predicted this coming out of school, but like, man, am I happy about it? And uh, like, not to brag, but when my friends talk about their jobs, it's just a job to them. Whereas for me, like, I'm having the best time. Yeah. There are ups and downs, but uh, yeah, I'm really, I'm really thankful for it. Can we, can we dive into just like strategy in general? Like what is strategy? I know we've talked a bit about, we've had different strategists that work in like an ad agency. So we've talked about like kind of advertising strategy, but can you just tell people what is a strategist and like, what do you do in a high level way? 
Big time. And I, I have this conversation in my head at work all the time because of what you just said about ad agency strategists. In my mind, strategy is about the choices you have and the ones you make and logic. It's like taking a structured approach to any problem. It could be a marketing problem. It could be a corporate strategy problem. So when I started my career, like the job was go into a company that's having an issue, figure it out. Um, so some of the issues which, you know, aren't as interesting as sports would be an insurance company that is trying to be more engaging to their customers or a bank that's trying to be the number one in customer service as opposed to the number three. So that's how I, in my first two years in my career, approach strategy. It's like corporate issues or corporate opportunities. And now I've realized you can apply that process and that structure and that logic to any problem. You could be in marketing, you could be in operations, and your strategy background or sort of fundamentals from consulting um, are applicable everywhere, in my opinion. So what would you say is like, this is just for like all the people who like wouldn't necessarily know, but like consulting, strategy, like what's the difference between those two things? Mm -hmm. Yeah, great question. And often they blend together. But for me, when I try to simplify it, it's like ambiguity just at its worst and people who come in and can make sense of that. Mm. And people right. often say consultants love and thrive in ambiguity. My perspective is nobody does. These consultants, formerly myself, hate ambiguity. So the first thing we do is we see this ambiguous thing and you create a framework or a structure mm -hmm. to be like, how are we going to tackle this problem? So for me, it's all about the framework. I think that's what consultants do. Framework, process, what they've done before. Um, strategy is, I said it before, like it's choices. Like what do you have in front of you and what are you going to do? That for me is strategy. Um, Why? Exactly. Exactly. What's the insight behind it? Do you, do you think anyone can be a strategist? We've talked about this before with other kind of advertising strategists, but what is your perspective? Is that level of thinking, like critical thinking, can everyone get there or do you have to just be wired a certain way? I'd love to believe everybody can, but yeah. I think we've probably all experienced like such a breadth of critical thinking skills with the people we interact with. I think for some people, maybe they're a type A, maybe it comes naturally to just approach things that way. I think it can be taught, but there's maybe a uh, you hit your peak sooner than others if that's just not how you're wired. If you're like, I want to say left brain, someone who could just be in ambiguity and that's how they thrive and they don't need structure. Um, but critical thinking, I think about this a lot. How do you teach that? Like, yeah, I remember doing like uh, when I was in university, like a logic course or something in my first year, it was like a philosophy course. And I remember like being like, damn, this is like, this is like hard because it's like if <laughs> X is this, then Y equals like that kind of stuff. And I'm like, damn, this is like really tough for me to like actually like understand and like, you know, at the time. But when you take that same problem or like that almost equation, let's call it that, and you just apply it to like a real life everyday kind of scenario, it becomes a little bit less like, oh, yeah, that's what they're actually saying. I kind of get that now. Yeah. Vibe, right. So it's like kind of interesting to say, like, can everybody be strategists? It's like, well, I think every to your point, everybody can like have those critical thinking skills. Just things need to be kind of like translated or applied in ways that like make it, I guess, more digestible for certain types of brains versus others, I would say. For no? sure. Like I was never good at math, like that equation stuff, like when it's numbers, can't do it. But a qualitative problem Love it. So yeah, it depends on the person for sure. It's tough. Like, I mean, yeah, I think that like problem solving and stuff, it's like, it's not something that you like really, you teach kind of inherently through school or you get taught or educated on like through school. Yeah. But like when it comes down to like logic and like when you get into like when you're facing business problems and stuff like that, it's an entirely yeah. different uh, level of understanding that maybe not everybody can like dive into right away. But like to your point, maybe everybody can in some way or another. For sure. My approach is like, it's funny because those soft skills, like when you're growing up or in school or undergrad, like they don't tell you like critical thinking. They tell you to be good technically or be good at like some sort of hard skill. For me, I'm like, I just want to slow it down. Like if I'm creating a process or framework, it's because I don't understand what's going on. So mm -hmm. in me slowing it down inadvertently, you're helping 
other people understand a problem. So I've realized that's a skill in like the last couple years, but I just thought I was slow. <laughs> <laughs> let's okay. Let's dive into to work a little bit. So you work in the sports and entertainment. I guess we both work in the sports yep. and entertainment field. Uh, it's been a heck of a year, heck of a year and a half, I would say. Um, in your eyes, from your perspective, like, what are some of like the biggest challenges that you've kind of seen as a result of the pandemic, as it results to like the sports and entertainment industry? And like, where do you see kind of things going now that we're in this like weird stage of reopening? Yeah, honestly, great thought. And I've been thinking about it the last year and a half almost. I think like the challenge is most of North American sports is really fixated on ticket sales. Like that's how we make the majority of our money. Whereas you contrast maybe Premier League, like it's broadcast rights, it's TV, it's sponsorship. So I think the business was so used to making money one way. And now it's like, that's off the table. What are we going to do? And I think like that brings forward a lot of challenges because you have um, you know, a sponsorships team that's now, you know, on the clock for generating money for this entire company. Um, and I think we've gotten really creative as MLSC in terms of, um, realizing that we need to go digital. We don't have any in arena assets. And like, we know that's such a big moneymaker. Um, what I find interesting is pre pandemic, we were focused on digital, digital, digital. We're only reaching 20,000 fans. How do we go bigger? Now I'm feeling everyone's been doing that for a year and a half. And they're like, we want to reach fewer people in person in the arena. So Mm -hmm. part of me is like the challenges we had before about trying to go digital may actually not be as prevalent when all these brands are now like, honestly, we just want to talk to a human now. Um, So that's been, that's been interesting to watch. Um, No shortage of challenges though. Like, in terms of trying to get creative, trying to sell new business right now, you're trying to convince a brand to spend with you. Um, it's risky for sure. And I think what this industry is not used to is being at the hands of the government in a pandemic, right? Like the closest challenge we've had to this is a lockout. But with a lockout, you know exactly what's happening. It's only affecting you, whereas this has affected everybody in the world. And I think that's been unique for us. Yeah, it's like an incredibly challenging time. And like where, like you said it best, like the government is really kind of dictating, I would say that obviously the timelines behind, you know, when we're getting, you know, fans back in seats kind of across all sports venues, you know, across the country. It's tricky, I'm not going to lie, like watching like the NHL playoffs, the NBA playoffs and seeing like, like, stadiums packed full of you know fans and arena and we're kind of just like sitting here trying to figure things out and you know i would say that like that's demoralizing for sure and it's like damn like we like we almost have all the tools kind of like ready to go we have the information here now what do we like do with it where i feel like we're kind of just like trying to figure out how to get there when it's like the problem's kind of already been solved to some degree i would say 100%. I watched the New York Knicks with their full stadium, and I'm furious. (laughs) I'm like, the Raptors played in Tampa Bay all year. Uh, It's definitely tough. I think I do really feel like the end is near, and I know we've said this to to ourselves like two, three times in the last 15 months, but, you know, luckily we're Canadian. Vaccines are happening. Like, it does feel like it's coming, but it's very challenging when you're working with a brand and you told them last year we'd be playing – we'd be playing at home and now we have no idea. Yeah. Uh, that's another challenge is like you make promises in this business and it's hard to keep them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, hundred percent. And like, I don't know, I'm just excited for when things can go back to normal, uh, get fans back in arena. It's kind of interesting. Cause it's like, when we think about like the, the business model, I guess it's like kind of like around ticket sales and like, this isn't just MLSE specific. It's kind of like with, you know, any franchise or whatever, like, probably all focused around selling jerseys or merch and tickets and all that kind of stuff so like when we go back to like what life was like how do you kind of see that like those priorities like do those come back do like how does like how do we move forward here like how does like business change you know in the sports and entertainment industry based on like what we've learned over the last year and a bit like, how does that affect, like, where we go? Yeah, great thought. And, I mean, 
I think tickets obviously are going to continue to be a huge priority, especially with what people are calling unprecedented demand for uh, live events. But I think it's about like finding new ways to commercialize the business, whether it's sponsorships or not. So I think of MLSC and, and building proprietary technology through our tech team, um, our digital labs team, and selling it to other teams or other organizations outside sports and entertainment. For me, I'm like, that's adapting to your circumstances and there's no reason for that to go away when we're back to normal. If anything, you want to double down on that, right? Yeah. Your team, do more of it, you know, expand your horizons and kind of build this like entrepreneurial arm of MLSC, at least as it relates to like the Canadian and North American space, but very curious to see how other sports and entertainment uh, organizations will react. Yeah. It's kind of interesting because I feel like, uh, there's been so much talk about digital and advancing in the digital space and all that kind of stuff. And like, I feel like, you know, obviously the last year and a bit's really accelerated that, right? Like we've done more digital work probably in the last 12 months than anyone ever. Yeah. Like, you know what I mean? Like all brands are like, Oh, how do I get my CRM going? How do I get my like, you know, e-commerce, all that kind of stuff. And it's challenging for like the brands who like don't have kind of all that set up already. But I feel like it's uh, when we look at what the future looks like, how do you not lose sight of like, it's like we've learned so much here and we've done so much in this space. How do you kind of keep what we've learned and apply it to when we're, you know, back in the back in the arena and like things are kind of as back to normal as they possibly can be. It's really exciting. I feel like there's like a billion different ways to look at it. But, you know, the future will be interesting for this industry. And personally, I feel like for for some, like who get hurt the most, like are like the Cineplexes who like yeah. have no like, I mean, what do you do here? Like Netflix and Crave and all those ones have kind of just like taken like all of the the market share, if that's like the right like yep. for it, um, yeah. of like streaming online and like exclusive, you know, packages for, you know, customers. But Cineflex is now kind of like shit, man. Like ticket sales is literally like 100%. The thing with, with those things though, is I think that there will be that bounce back where once we are able to go out, I'm not going to want to sit at home and watch a movie on Netflix that's premiering. Like I want to go to the theater because you've been deprived of it for so long. Same thing with sports arenas, right? They're going to be packed. It's going to be lines, getting people ready just to go out and have an excuse to be around people. So I would put do that stock in Cineplex. It's bouncing back up. Man. Yeah. <laughs> I would do anything to spend $27 on some popcorn right now. Right. <laughs> I'm going all in. Like I'm not Sticky floors. Money. I'm ready. For yeah, that, so. yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's interesting. Cause like in many ways, some brands got lucky. Like this, this pandemic was horrible for so many, but for the brands that just were able to, you know, be what we needed. So in many ways, Netflix, Crave, Disney Plus, yeah. TikTok. Mm. Um, I think as long as people focus on what consumers need, like I think what frustrates me sometimes is like building something for the sake of something and nobody wants it. So, you know, you build a platform for a second screen experience when people watch sports. It's like, what's the insight there? Do people want to be, you know, consuming sports on their phones, on a different screen and on their TV? Uh, maybe not. Maybe at this point in the pandemic, we're sick of that. And we want to just watch sports with our friends and do it the normal way. So it's yeah, yeah. fan and, you know, research will be important coming out of this thing. I'm like, what do people actually want? And is it yeah. the same thing they wanted 18 months ago? Yeah. Yeah. It, it reminds me of, of Quibi. I don't know if you, if you yeah. remember that platform that completely tanked because they launched during the pandemic and they're their, their central idea was basically watching short form content on your phone on the go, but there's right. no one commuting oh anymore. So they just completely folded. You know, it's something that you have this insight. It wasn't backed in a lot of research. And then now your platform gone to shit and everyone's making fun of you. So <laughs> bad timing. It was just kind of weird too. Cause like, I don't know, at the end of the day, like, what was it like 10 minute episodes of like, minutes, whatever yeah. I'm like, I'm not watching 10 minutes of anything on my phone here, guys. Like, seriously. But and I'll spend an hour on TikTok watching like, yeah. 30 second clips, right? Like, that's what I want. Yeah. 100%. 100%. Um, all right. Let's keep going here. Uh, had to ask. Uh, this has been like a point of discussion that I feel like we've talked about 
uh, quite a bit over the last, um, you know, season of the Mad Mix. Um, but last year we kind of saw this like collective, um, what's the right word here? Um, acknowledgement maybe, uh, of, you know, underrepresentation of, you know, minorities, you know, racism has obviously boiled to the surface and people are kind of recognizing that being a thing that exists in our day-to-day lives as obviously as much as we don't want to admit it. And by we, I mean, not me because like, we know guys, we knew, we knew, but like, I don't know, like what, what do you see here? Like has, has, in your experiences, based on, you know, where you've worked, your experiences, whatever, like, have you felt a, a bit of a collective waking up of, like, an industry? And, like, do you – and further to that, do you feel like there's been, like, actual change that has happened um, in the last year or so? Yeah, great thought. And it's – I feel like there – there's more conversation than there ever has been. And I need to accept that as a win, but I'll be honest with you guys. Like I'm impatient. I don't feel like I've seen much change, tangible change. Um, I always wonder about, you know, the people and brands that posted black squares, for example, like where are they now? What's been done? And like, for me, it's like the longevity of the conversation. Um, and the fact that people need to keep talking about it forever, basically. Um, so I, I've, I have like conflicting thoughts on the topic because part of me is frustrated. It took this long and it's this slow. And then the other part of me is like, at least it's like moving in the right direction. And there's something about that. There's something about more people than ever on this journey. Um, and that's a positive thing too, but it's, you know, to your point, we knew. Um, so you're kind of like, all right, keep going, keep going. We're done. Yeah, I feel like it's it's really tricky to like, I don't know, like the the challenge that I've seen or like the challenge that I'm seeing, the issues that I'm seeing kind of across the board, like having recently worked in advertising, um, now kind of like working more of like a marketing level position, all of these companies are posting and like especially in the advertising industry it's all about the show and tell it's all about look what we're doing look at all this it's very performative let's just call it what it is here yep um it's so hard to like really measure anything that's been done and like how do you do that when like no real objectives or goals have been set like i'm going to read you a quote here this is from my friend seth uh he was on the show before as well show is seth waterman um He posted on LinkedIn the other day and this quote like really stuck out to me because it's so true. Um, He says, if your diversity and inclusion efforts don't have a budget and measured goals by now, they're not real. And that I think has a a lot of truth to it because I feel like, and I'd love your, both of your perspectives on this. It's like, and maybe this is too conspiracy theory of me, but like (laughs) when you think about, what that actually means, like when brands come out or companies come out and say, like, we acknowledge that like some fucked up shit has happened. We're all like, we're going to do better. We're going to be better. Do you think that like these kind of claims are so ambiguous uh, that like they've almost been designed to not be measurable? Like no one can really call anybody on anything when like, nothing was really actionable kind of from the beginning. Maybe that's too like far fetched to me. I don't know, but it's like, and maybe it wasn't done on purpose, but I just feel so many companies that do this, like haven't really moved the needle on a lot of the things that they said they were going to last summer. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I want to believe there's no nefarious intent and like, that's not by design, but I think it's the outcome regardless. I think it's like the companies who choose to be vulnerable are the ones I think I would trust the most. So I'm not saying Apple and Uber are perfect, but I know that they've published statistics on the their workforce and what kind of um, diversity they have in the workforce and their targets and things like that. And I think when a brand openly shows you they have 2% black employees and tells you that, um, I think there's something behind it. Whereas a statement on Instagram to say you stand behind whatever community you stand behind, that's weak to me. Um, yeah, curious on both your thoughts. The way I look at it is if I don't see the CEO talk about 
their diversity and inclusion efforts, they don't exist to me because that is where that is a powerhouse. That is the leader of the organization. And I find where that works the best, like the taxi example, is when the CEO is involved in the diversity and inclusion committee. If it's just like a small group of employees that don't feel empowered trying to make change, it's not really going to go anywhere. Further to that as well is it's very performative, performative in the sense that if all these other companies in the industry are speaking on their diversity inclusion efforts and you as a company in that same industry haven't done anything, you might not care as much, but you just want to look like you do. So you fit in with that industry. So that's yeah. why you put out that black square and don't follow up with anything because you don't actually care. You just want to look like you do so that, you know, you don't get any backlash. I think that's like a central problem that we haven't really called enough people out for, to be honest. I totally agree. And like, it's, it's frustrating because when you, when that becomes the problem, the actual problem just gets swept under the rug again. Yeah. Like we've seen it been done literally forever. And that's yeah. like the most frustrating part about like, it shouldn't be about, you know, look at what we're doing. Look at all this stuff. Like, this is great. You know, and Dak and I were kind of just talking about stuff like this kind of before we jumped on the podcast, like, Move in silence, man. Like, yeah, you know, we don't need to. No, you know, <laughs> yeah, just do it. You know what yeah. I mean? Like, let the, like, let the the numbers, let like the, I guess the data and everything that you're kind of collecting inherently as part of the process speak for itself. Let it speak when you have a new employee going through a couple interviews and the HR person is like, and this is kind of like what we're doing in terms of X, Y, Z in the, you know, DEI space, you know, let those kind of conversations happen, like at the organization to the prospect, you know, at that level, you know what I mean? I just feel like mm -hmm. it's, there, there's a, obviously a level of like performative activism that, that, exists so strongly not only just in advertising and marketing but like throughout several industries as well and and doc you know you kind of said it best there yeah definitely it's it's tough as well because i'm seeing a lot of diversity and inclusion burnout from black employees or people of color that are on a committee they had great hopes for what they could kind of change and bring forth and then they realize that there's actually a lot of resistance and there isn't a budget as seth was mentioning I'm seeing that conversation happening a lot on Twitter where, you know, black employees at tech companies are saying, I'm not trying to be a part of this committee anymore because it's, they're not paying me anymore. It's, it's tiring. I'm not being able to change anything that I propose. And, and, you know, like when people leave, then that actually also can ruin the potential change of that committee. So we're not seeing the growth that we need to because folks aren't being supported. I so feel like, some type of way about that. Cause I feel like the work, ends up being on the shoulders of the people who are marginalized. And that's something that's uh, like, yes. the ERG leads, right? It's like, okay, we're going to, I feel actually I have mixed emotions about ERGs because it's like here, you're going to form a group and then solve the problem yourself. Mm -hmm. And I, that the problem is everybody's problem. Right. And so I, I recently saw that LinkedIn is paying ERG chairs, like their global ERG, uh, an extra 10 K on top of the role responsibilities. Wow. And like, I appreciated that because it is so much more work and isn't meant to be side of desk. Like if you think about uh, going for a promotion or the next step you want to take in your career, is that being considered or is that actually slowing you down from doing your job that your, you know, your peers are doing and they're not leading an ERG and taking on that, that mental, emotional toll of it. Um, so I'm, I haven't made up my mind on how I feel about ERGs. It's yeah. And you know what? I think, I think part of the problem too is like, obviously there's not a lot of, I would say, at least from my experiences, uh, not a lot of like black people, people of color at like a VP or higher, yeah. you know, um, who hold those positions. Yeah. And now all these companies are kind of like really quickly trying to like get diverse talent, diverse talent in there. Um, and then often when they arrive, like, you have like junior accounts people or creatives or strategy, whatever, like these people who you now kind of just like quickly hired are now put in positions where it's like, okay, cool. Well, here's your actual job, but also like, we want you to be a part of this too. And we want you to do this. And we want to talk about this with you when it's like, hang on, you're paying this person probably like 40 grand yeah. a year 
and now you're kind of getting them to solve like implicitly kind of like have these discussions and solve some of these problems for you and i just don't think that like that's okay like that's not that's not how we should be doing things at all like and i feel would love your perspective on this one as well is just the like a lot of like diversity and inclusion leads at agencies or um you know big companies like you know how do you feel like those like what is the impact of those roles to you and what's the importance or significance of them yeah i mean i have so many thoughts on the topic i feel like the people who understand the problem should either be given the tools and the autonomy to go and fix it or Mm -hmm. other people should be along that journey so what i mean by that is like a, you know, I'm in an Asian ERG group and it's like, we're tasked with highlighting Asian heritage month and like furthering the conversation. But for me, I'm like, how do you change representation in the company? Like, that's Mm -hmm. not something in our repertoire. And I think the people that are in charge of that, um, you know, there's, there's a broken link there. It's like, we're not actually being able to influence the things that I believe are most important for representation. So it's like, the accountability shouldn't just fall again on the marginalized and the people who lead these ERGs. It should fall to Dax point on the CEO on, you know, yeah. the chief HR officer and the people accountable for the company's performance for me, they're one in the same. Um, so, you know, it blows my mind sometimes when I see companies are like, we're going to hire someone in charge of EDI for us. We're going to have a bunch of ERGs. If anybody asks us, that's what we're doing. Um, talk to me about your board, talk to me about your executive leadership team, talk to me about the, um, growth and promotion track for your BIPOC employees. And I say BIPOC, even though I don't love that term, cause it just yeah. <laughs> a bunch of identities into one, but yeah, yeah. what I mean. So yeah, it's, I mean, it's a, go ahead, Dax. Go ahead. No, you go. You I was going to say, it, it's a weird feeling of, of. You're joining a company, you know, you're, you know, a black employee and there's a diversity and inclusion committee. And I feel like I'm at this point, I don't know if it's controversial to say, but I just don't even want to do that work anymore. Like whether or not I can make change, like I I don't want that to be a part of my role. You know, I just want to do my job, learn about design, thrive in design and not have to think about this layer of bringing other black employees into the, the company. I want that to just be a thing that's done not that I have to push for or like make any effort to kind of put towards that. I just wish I could just have a regular job, go in and not have to think about anything outside of that. Wouldn't it be nice? We don't get that luxury as people of color. (laughs) Well, one might argue that it's the responsibility of our white colleagues to take on that role and make sure that they're thinking about those things when hiring. When you look at ERGs and you look at diversity and inclusion teams, it's mostly people of color or from like LGBTQ plus communities. Of course. Um, that's frustrating for me. I want, that's what I want to see is like the level of equity between who's actually fighting the fight, um, including our, our white colleagues and peers. So to that point, does it all come down to, because there's so many problems within, you know, trying to solve like, how do we get more black talent or, you know, BIPOC talent in our organization? how like we're noticing these trends being a thing conversations are being had about this we're doing surveys we're doing we're understanding the the landscape but does it come down to like white fragility at the end of the day like does it come down to like i'm gonna challenge you on this shit and it's gonna be like we're gonna have like a serious conversation here does it just come down to like those kind of conversations where people don't want to be put in positions where they feel uncomfortable in the highest level I think that's what it comes down to (laughs) because it's like, would you, are you going to feel like challenged if I say, Hey, you just spent X amount of money doing this research to, to prove the, the hypothesis that your BIPOC employees are feeling some type of way about working here because they're not represented accurately. There's microaggressions literally everywhere. Like we're doing the research Mm -hmm. to find out information we already know. Um, so what, what does that do other That's than it. have conversations with CEOs, executive level people being like, just a quick heads up, this information here is going to challenge your shit upstairs here and you're not going to feel comfortable about it and it's going to suck and you're probably going to like cry or whatever it is because we've seen that happen 
literally so many times, at least from my experiences in the last little bit. And the output of that is the Basecamp CEO removing <laughs> all committees and removing yeah. <laughs> all diversity and inclusion efforts and any type of um, um, societal conversations happening and political conversations. Like that is the output of he's feeling the pressure and he's saying, let me just like collapse all of this and we'll just focus on the job because I don't want to bring <laughs> anyone's true self to work. Yeah, you know? they have to want to make that change and be uncomfortable. Yeah. And how many people who don't, you know, who have the luxury of choosing want to be uncomfortable. And that's tough. Like I think of like, think of like Alexis Ohanian who like stepped down to give space to people of color in his role. And mm-hmm. like, we need more of that, but who's going to make a personal sacrifice uh, for the betterment of diversity and inclusion? Not well, everybody. Well, think that- of, um, sorry, go ahead. No, no, you go, you go, go. I was going to say, this is the argument I've heard so much. I actually took notes on how to respond to it, which is like, we're going to hire for diversity. I think some people hear that and think that means we're going to sacrifice talent. And it's like, why does your mind go to that? Right. People need people here. We're going to hire diverse talent and they assume you're just going to hire someone not qualified. That's a problem. And then second, you have the, you know, a white male, for example, saying, "Okay, well, I deserve that job and now I'm not going to get it. And that for me, that's complex because it's like, what makes you think you deserve that job over somebody else you have not met who could be as qualified, if not more, and diverse? Yeah. And that's, yeah. I think, the tough part with like quotas and targets work because they're real and they're measurable. But I think companies are real scared, to your point, Malik, about the fragility of everybody else saying, well, hey, what about me? It's not your turn, right? Like it's it's a tough, it's a tough situation. I don't. I can't imagine how I would handle it, but it's what needs no. to happen. Yeah, 100%. Like, it's all just about recognizing what the actual issue is. And it's like companies that post like the black square and all that kind of stuff and make these statements. It's like, are you guys ready to get your shit checked? Because if you're not, don't put yourself on the line here because like there's no half in, half out with this kind of stuff. So it's either you have the conversation, you get your ass kicked a couple of times because I, I, the hardest part that I have, it's like these companies spend so much money on like this research data, and all that kind of stuff, but there's nothing actually tangible to like do afterwards. Like it's like I've seen yeah, agencies yeah. conduct all these surveys. I've seen them like do all this stuff to obviously prove information that we already kind of know, but it's like there's no like actionable takeaway and it's like here's what we learned this is crazy here's you would think like any actual brief or you know client challenge that you would have is like you would say here's the problem that we've identified here's the strategy now here's the way we're going to execute against that and and, you know but like for some reason it doesn't exist in this space because i think people are just too scared to get their shit checked and it's easy. It's easy to put on a survey and compile data, make a cool little graphic with Helvetica font on a black screen <laughs> and post it as a PDF on LinkedIn. That is so easy to do, but to actually like synthesize the data and look at, you know, what are the objectives that are going to come out of this and how are we going to measure these over time? That is where it's harder and it takes a bit more thinking and they're not ready for that step or they don't care enough for that step. So yeah, all they need to do is post their PDF of their statistics. And we'll all be like, oh, great job. Okay, we'll, you know, we'll forget, we'll forget to check them in five years about it. So yeah, that's kind of where I see it. Do you guys think that like people are becoming more aware of it and checking brands themselves? Like, I I don't know about you guys. Like if I see a brand that's like not aligned with my values, like I'm down to pick someone else and pay more. Like that's what I'm at. Do you think Mm -hmm. a lot of people are there? Do you still think people are just going to do what they do and not really care? Um, it's tough. I think it's a great question. I think people are going to do like not really give a shit, um, to be completely honest. I think that like people will always kind of have like an implicit reason to support familiarity, um, in their own minds and where it comes down to like, do you want to be challenged? And it's like, do you want to challenge yourself based on information that's in front of you? But like, like doc and I, I think we said this last summer, it's like, vote with your wallet like you can choose where you want to put your money and like for me if i find out that like obviously i have a different perspective than you know some of my like white friends but it's like if i know that a brand doesn't support uh you know 
like or is against like let's use Chick-fil-A as an example or something like that where they're like so against I was just gonna bring that up community. <laughs> I'm like, okay, I don't need a chicken sandwich that bad. Like I don't want to put more money into yeah. this into this funnel where like, you know, people who I know and my friends in that community are gonna feel like I'm going against them. And it's like I don't I don't I don't really wanna be a part in that. But again, I feel like I have a different perspective than other people who haven't necessarily experienced really any type of discrimination, let's be honest. Um, and yeah. those people aren't really going to change their behavior or their spending habits. I would hope they would to some degree, but I just don't know if that's like realistic for people who like honestly are like not really giving a shit about this. It needs to have consequences, right? Like I think brands have been speaking out because they saw, you know, a reckoning last May and they're like, if I don't speak up, I'm going to lose business. Like that has to be what motivated them. So how do you translate that to a personal, to a person who just wants a chicken sandwich from Chick-fil-A? What will ever drive them unless they're personally affected to not spend that money? It's like shaming. Like it's that type of stuff. Like I, I saw just yesterday an Instagram post that said like, you know, for pride, like if you support pride and yet are buying your chicken sandwiches at Chick-fil-A, like maybe you rethink know. your allyship. Yeah. yeah. You don't, like you don't yeah. care. Don't like, exactly. There was this tweet that I saw that was so interesting. Um, Cause this, the Chick-fil-A stuff resurfaced obviously during pride month and someone posted the recipe for <laughs> the chicken sandwich and it was like, okay, make it at home and now st- stop going to that average ass chicken spot pretty much. And it was like blowing up on Twitter. They put their recipe for the chicken sandwich and the, the famous sauce. And they're like, just make it yourself. Don't go to Chick-fil-A. I'm like, yeah, I love that. You like, know? it's not that hard to do. Like, to be honest, like it's really not that hard, <laughs> but it's, it's like, not difficult. I think, and I and think I, it's not that great. <laughs> well, yeah. And, and I just feel like it's like, like spending your money is the easiest way to like show that you care about something. You know what I mean? Like you're, like that's like the simplest way. It's like if you have one brand that supports this and one brand that supports this or doesn't support this, like you can easily pick based on like what you think is right with the information that you know. But I don't know. It's kind of a, it, it's a really interesting conversation that I feel like needs to continue to be had and like people just need to get their shit checked. But while we're on the topic of like pride, it's pride month. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Super exciting. I mean, there's certainly um, a level of, I'm trying to phrase this properly, there's certainly a level of um, performative activism that exists, you know, with with brands during during this month. There's memes that are coming out about, like, uh, you know, brands, like, being gay in, like, the month of June because, like, you know what I mean? Like, that kind of Changing stuff. Changing the logo, like, LinkedIn. The logo, <laughs> the right logo. Stuff. And it's, like, it's, I find, like, I've always kind of had an, not an issue because I think it's, like, super important that I feel like people of that community can feel represented in what we call everyday society. And I feel like the more that you, you know, have those, like, uh, like the rainbow logo and all that kind of stuff, it kind of normalizes it a little bit um, in regards to like it just being a thing uh, that like isn't, shouldn't really be a big deal, but certainly is. Um, But I want to ask you guys this question, both of you, like who, who do you think does pride really well? And like, how can brands who are doing performative shit kind of like relook at what their purpose is? I'll let you go first, Jenna. <laughs> well, it's a tough question. I don't have a good answer in that. Like, actually, I was looking at Pride for, you know, EDI work, and my answer is, like, nobody I can think of. Because when I look at these brands, and I'm a tough critic, but, like, I saw H&M and G. Crew like, donating proceeds from their, like, rainbow capsule collection to LGBTQ plus, like, causes and organizations. And at a glance, you're like, that's great. They're actually putting their money where their mouth is. I'm pushing for like do something as opposed to just throwing money at the problem. So while I'm grateful that organizations are getting funds, I feel like these brands have a responsibility to do more than have a capsule collection or a rainbow product or a rainbow logo. Um, and then take it down the second July's here. So 
I haven't seen a brand that's impressed me recently um, because for me, I'm looking for more than just donations now. I'm looking for tangible action. Tell me where, where that money's going. Tell me what you're doing with it. Mm-hmm. Again, talk to me about your board, your executive team, the way that LGBTQ plus is represented in, within your company. Um, you know, does your company have pronouns in their email signature? Like something simple like that can make someone in that community feel very welcome. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of brands still aren't doing that. So I'm fired up about it. I don't feel impressed by anybody, but I'm curious to hear what you guys think. I feel like Doc, I'll let you jump in <laughs> in a sec, but like where I feel like it's becoming a really big issue. And like, this is my, like, I'm a straight guy. So like, I certainly don't share the same experiences, but where I kind of like draw similarities is that I am a minority. I'm represented in like a marginalized group of in society, but where I think things get, where I get really bothered by things. And I would love to hear, you know, the perspective of someone in that community is when brands are doing, are like changing their logos and all that kind of stuff. And then like using language from that community as part of like some type of advertising or whatever. So it's like, you're taking what exists in a community and you're like trying to like represent your brand as something that's a part of that community when like probably historically it hasn't been. So that's where I find like, there's a big issue of just like, taking of culture and trying to represent it in a certain way that helps you sell more beer if you're a Bud Light or like, you know what I mean? And, and that's, I've I've always had an issue with that because that exists in, in black culture, certainly all the time you see like, you know, black people represented in ads, like, they're rapping or playing basketball or whatever because like every black person raps and hey, plays let's go to the basketball court in our chevy <laughs> oh my god That's so true though like that where i'm like i just get i get so fired up when like i see stupid shit like that where i'm like i don't even know who exists on your board that like is like is this a business decision or is this like a you know you actually have people in that community writing these lines and making your ads and that kind of stuff to like help you help like merge those two worlds and be a part of it because it's less of like how you are to the public. It's how you should be with your, you know, internal, you know, organization operation. Yeah. And consistency. It's like, Yes, it's Pride Month and Black History Month. Do it all year round. Like there is nothing stopping a brand from celebrating Pride in October. Right. But they don't. They follow the same cycle and the same calendar. And that's I I just wonder about I always think back to the um, Kendall Jenner Pepsi ad. It's just like a colossal failure of just so many things. And like if there was a group of marketers and I, I don't actually know that there wasn't, but I think I can guess that there was not. It's like you can represent other people better when you have that representation internally. And that's for me, the core of it. It's like the marketing will be better. The products will be better. You make more money as a diverse organization. Like how much more proof do you need? Um, but I'm with you, like the overcorrection at certain times of the year, I think people can see through it. Yeah. yeah. I think that's the conversation you're seeing online now where a lot of people are starting to check these brands for things that they could get away with maybe a few years ago, or it's like, okay, TD is now uh, rainbow colored for this month. That's okay. But now when they do it, it's like, okay, but what are you doing for that community? Right? Yeah. Like Red Lobster posted this horrible <laughs> Red Lobster one. No, <laughs> Instagram picture of a, what is it, a biscuit with a, a rainbow overlay? And it's just like Happy Pride Month, probably built on Microsoft Paint. And then no. they just, <laughs> oh, like, the okay. comments are like, okay, do gay people eat free? Or like, what's the point of this? <laughs> like, it's literally like, I don't want to laugh because like it, it's like comically offensive. It's like, what yeah, do you yeah, think yeah. that like it's so hard someone thought it was a good idea a team thought it was a good idea like, yeah. we need like they're like shit nice idea man like that's a good one but like it's like and there's a level of like i don't know like maybe we dive into this but it's like there's a level of like uh like try hard like it's like they want to do the right thing and they so like desperately want to be a part of the right thing but like they just don't know how even though like the tools are available to everybody for sure but it was just like 
it's just like seriously like this is just like this is this is a meme like this is fucking incredible like you know what i mean but mm-hmm. yeah it's not hard to educate yourself right like as a brand yeah. my instinct is like at least they're trying and then my second is like it's not difficult to hire representative yeah. talent and educate yourself and so like everyone's standards are just a bit higher and i'm grateful for that Mm-hmm. It's pretty, to, uh, yeah. to, to answer the earlier question, though, in terms of what brands or like what industries I think are doing well, funny enough, I'm going to give the counter perspective to you, Jenna, because uh, I actually think that fashion brands might just do it the best. And the reason why is because I think they've I think they've started to um, promote, you know, more trans models and uh, models um, um, from the LGBT community all year round. I don't feel like they're just doing it on pride month now. Maybe it's not H and M and the big kind of retailers, but I'm seeing from other fashion brands that on a magazine, you'll see a trans couple or, you know, a gay couple and they're doing that all the time. So now during pride month, if they want to celebrate and create apparel that has rainbow colored themes or whatever, that's creating apparel for a community that's going to wear it during the pride parade. And you see that reflected. So, Mm -hmm. you know, the donations, maybe all they're doing is providing money, but I think they're also sometimes providing that representation as yeah, well. That's, that's really not all fashion brands, but I think there are a select few that are, are doing a good job. That's a really good point. I've I've seen um I've seen it in cosmetics a lot actually. Yeah, like yeah. it's not just female models, and I think that that's been impressive. So you're right. Like the representation really really matters. Um. So yeah, I'm a bit I'm a bit of a tough critic, but I appreciate that perspective a lot. It's always good to Definitely. be. It's always good to be. Well, that was that was a great episode. We covered a ton of topics, great discussions, a lot of laughs, a lot of roasting along the way as well for a lot of brands <laughs> as well. So if you're listening to this and you're a brand, get your shit together. Make sure your goals are measurable. Like, you know, the smart goals or they teach us in school. Smart goals, like, specific, measurable. <laughs> like, it's almost that easy, guys. That's all I got from Humber in my, in my three years. That's all I got. Shout goals, out to yeah. Humber. But, uh, Jenna, thanks so much again for joining on the show. This is a great, great episode. Um, you know, we'll have a, a ton of new episodes coming out this summer. Uh, a lot of good discussion, obviously. Um, if you have any comments, you want to talk to us, you want to get in touch, uh, drop us a line at the Mad Mix on Instagram uh, or just hit up Dak or myself uh, on Instagram as well and uh, we'll get back to you. But Jenna, again, thank you so yes, much. Sir. It's been great. Thanks, guys. This was a blast. Appreciate it. Any parting Amazing. words? What do you want the fans to know? Everyone, let's just be better. That's all I got. Be better. That's it. That's the Perfect quote. Ending. Jenna, thank you so much. <laughs> Peace. Peace.